it's going to be wordy. It's going to be lengthy. It's going to be doctrine. It's going to be clarification. So if you're, um, if you're not a note taker, you're, you're okay today. We have an outline for you. If you do not have an outline, we have two. We have regular outlines as far as what I'm going to be doing, almost word for word. You'll, you'll catch most of it. And the other is this. We have a larger outline. For those of you um, that need larger fonts, we have that too. So if you do not have an outline, raise your hand. We want to make sure that you get one. Um, and so I think we're going to try to post it online and so that if you, if you do need it. But if you want a digital copy of it, then what I would ask is, is let us know. And we'll actually send you a digital copy in case you want to send that out to friends or family or other people that I know a lot of times we send out these messages to other people, either through giving them the link on Facebook or the link on YouTube, and we send out the messages. Well, I want you to be able to actually send out a digital copy as well. So they'll have something that they can either say, yeah, this is scriptural, or no, it's not. Because what we're looking at here this morning is a portion of scripture and I think that what happens is this, that within the church, there's confusion. Within individuals, there's confusion. But within the Bible, there's not. And I think this is what we do is we go through the scriptures. And, and uh, for the last couple of years, I've been praying through the details of this. However, coming into Peter's epistle and then seeing as we came into chapter 2 that there initially he begins to talk about the institution of the church. He moves over, once we hit the verse 13 through um, 17, into the whole institution of the government. And then when he gets into chapter 3, he talks about the institution of the family. And through seeing that just instituted so clearly here in Peter, it helped me to get all of this data that God has been giving me for the last couple of years to literally... Um, file it away neatly, scripturally, um, doctrinally, so that we can have something to stand on. So let's just start and jump right into it. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says this, Therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king supreme, verse 14, or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, verse 15, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Verse 16 is free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So we see he's just simply saying in verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. There's another passage, a parallel passage that you're probably aware of found in Romans 13, and it simply declares this, Romans 13, verse 1, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment upon themselves. For rulers, verse 3 of Romans 13, are not a terror to good works, but to evil, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, but he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So we see here that within this passage of, of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, and Romans 13, that this is a passage that declares that God has given 
divine authority to government. So he's given this divine authority to the government of a nation. He's given it to the the government of a state, the government of a city, the government of a town. God has given government divine authority. But here's the question. Is this text where it says, verse 13 of 1 Peter 2, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Does this text and the text of Romans 13 say that, that we are to obey the government no matter what they are doing or telling us to do? That's a really good question. It's a question that has stumbled a lot of people within the church in these last couple of years and probably beyond that. And so are there any limitations that are, are clarified in the scripture? In other words, when God gives this sphere of authority to the government, does it have limitations or is it unlimited? And I think that's a really good question. And what should be the response of the, of the Christian if the government overreaches this, you know, the, the, the sphere that God had put in it and it goes beyond the limitations that God has divinely placed within it? And so are we, submit, are we only to submit to, you know, when the government is doing its sphere, are we only to submit to the good dictates and the things that we like or if it's within their sphere, do we actually have to submit to the dumb things as well? And, and so, you know, we look to that, you know, and so can we as Christians, can we ignore the things that are arbitrary and capricious, which the government does and all of its self-serving decisions? Or if it's within their limitations, are we to submit to that? Where are limitations? And I think it's a really good question that maybe in the last couple of years, you've asked that question to yourself or of others. As a Christian, where do we not follow the, you know, every dictate of the, of the government? It says here, you know, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. Well, keep in mind that when he says submit yourself to every ordinance of man, that there are spheres within that ordinance. Let me help you out here. It declares this, that there are three in, in scriptures, there are three institutions that God has ordained. He has ordained three distinct and separate institutions. The first is the institution of the family. And so a father has um, basically authority and over his family, and his authority is limited to his family. And then he's instituted the church. And the church has its authority limited to the church within the sphere that God has placed it in. And then you have the institution of the government. So you have three institutions, the institution of the family, the institution of the church, the institution of the government. And the government's authority is limited to civil peace, the order and the, 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 the civil order of a nation, order of a state, the, the peace within the city and the town, and is tasked with national protection of its people. And so we see here that it's, it's, it's you know, said you got to protect your people and also for a government, you can protect your borders. And so it's important to realize that the governments are also tasked with enforcing these regulations. In other words, if, if, a, if people within the government do not adhere to the regulations that the government has imposed, then the, the, the government is in charge of meeting out the discipline or the punishment that's regarding. So in other words, when someone would kill someone unlawfully, then what? Then the government has that authority to mete out the punishment for that crime. 
Now, as, as we look to this, keep in mind that there are areas where that government, for the most part, God had desired that all governments not be a democracy, not be, you know, whatever else governments are. He desires that all governments be a theocracy. He desires that all government be governed by God, governed by the word of God. And so it's authority that it derives, the law that it places are here found in the word. That's what he desires. Now, there are governments that step outside of that. And here's where um, the, the question comes in. Within the biblical sphere of the institution or government, are we to um, submit to every ordinance? When they are within their sphere, do we submit to every ordinance of the, the, the government? And the answer is, look at what, what Peter says here. Submit yourself to every ordinance. So the answer to that is yes. In Matthew chapter 22, I want to read to you just a couple of verses, but in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 17, Jesus makes this incredible statement where the, the leaders come to him, the Pharisees, and they ask him this question in Matthew 22, 17, tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Can Caesar make us and take my money? Do they have that right? And so Jesus perceived their wickedness as, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they showed him a denarius. And he said, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, it's Caesar's. And so he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render unto God the things that are God's. Give to Caesar what Caesar requires. Give to God what God requires. And so, yes, we are to submit to those things that God declares us to do for the government. In Matthew chapter 20, I want to read a couple of verses to you, beginning in verse 24 through verse 28. But it makes this statement, And when the ten heard it, they were greatly displeased with the... Um, with the, the brothers, and verse 25, but Jesus called him to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. So he says, you know how the government works. The government tries to choose the, the best, the most powerful people, put them in charge, and then they lord that authority. He doesn't say that it's wrong. He said, that's what the rulers do. They, they lord over you. They exercise authority over you. Yet he does make this statement in verse um, 26 through 28. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, him, give his life a ransom to many. So we do see that biblically, that when a government is within its sphere that God has ordained, when it's, when it's within its institution, that God says, this is your boundaries, these are your limitations, this is what I created you for. When it's in that sphere, we as Christians are to submit to every ordinance for the sake of God. Now, when they're outside of that sphere, then things change a little bit. There's a portion in the book of Acts. Let me read it to you. The first is found in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, where the religious leaders, the, the, the Sadducees, and, and are telling Peter you know, and you know, John not to preach. 
And it's interesting that in Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 19, Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. And so they continue to preach. Well, as they're preaching, eventually they go and they, they, they put them in um, jail. And eventually what happens is in Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 27, when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered them and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So understand what we're developing here. There are three institutions that God has designed, that God has instituted. The institution of the family, the institution of the church, the institution of the government. Within the government, when they're within their sphere that God has placed within the scriptures, we listen, we submit to every ordinance. But when they step out of the sphere, and we're about to see what that is as we continue with this message, when they do step out of the sphere, then it is important and it's necessary for us as Christians to obey God rather than men, to obey God rather than the government, but only in those specific areas where they step outside of their boundaries and they encroach into the institution that they shouldn't be in. So when the government Government tries to insert itself into the church and says, this is what the church's doctrine should be. Well, we say, no, God is the one who institutes what the church's doctrine should be. You can say what you want marriage to be in the government. You can say anyone can marry anyone. But in the church, God makes it very clear that a man must marry a woman. And only that is the definition of marriage. So we don't change that because the government wants to, to change that. The government has no authority to come into the sphere of the church and to change those things. But we do understand that every so often a government will go beyond its sphere to what God has called the government to do. If you're familiar with the, the book of Exodus, there in chapter 1, the Pharaoh, who's the head of the government there in Egypt, gives a command to the midwives, and in verses 15 through 17, that I want you to take all the, the male children who are born and I want you to kill them. Well, it declares this of the midwives, where it says the midwives themselves, they feared God, and they didn't listen to the Pharaoh. They, they simply said, no, the, these, these Hebrew women are much more stronger. They, they, so they give birth before we even get there. They lie to the Pharaoh, or maybe it was a true statement. We don't know for sure, but they make that statement. Regardless, they don't do what the Pharaoh asked him to do. Why? Because the, the government has now stepped outside its limitations. The limitations within the government are what? Well, we're going to see in a moment that the, the institution of the government is to bring safety and security to a nation, to a city, to a town, to protect its people, to protect its borders, and also to mete out penalties and mete out punishment. But we do understand that the government doesn't tell us, kill your neighbor, that, that, that's not within its institution. So when it steps outside of its limitation, then like the Hebrew women, you know, they simply say, well, regardless of what you want, we're not going to do that. There's another passage that deals with that same situation in the book of Hebrews. 
And within the book of Hebrews, chapter 11 and verse 23, it makes this statement, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was beautiful. He was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. Do you understand how, how they did not listen because the king says, well, now we're going to throw the, the children into the river. And they didn't listen to him for three months. Now, after three months, she does put him in the river in an ark, in a basket. And he says, okay, if you want this command, put the children in the river. God has said, put them in the river, but God's going to change what you want into something that's going to glorify him as Moses goes floating down, of course, is taken over by, um, taken by Pharaoh's daughter. So we see here that within these areas, I think it's important to recognize that there are certain spheres in which the government can interject and certain areas in which they cannot interject. In the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1, we begin to see that the, the, the king had instituted a diet for Daniel and his friends. And Daniel and his friends says, wait a second, scripturally, God has called us to be on a certain diet. And what I'm going to ask is this, could you please let us have this diet? If we don't you know, do that, if, if we're not better at the end of a the week, then, then simply we'll, we'll eat your food. But he trusted God. And so what he did is he chose not to compromise what God had called him to do as an individual, as a family. And I think it's important that when that dictate came out, compromise, Daniel said, I don't want to compromise. And so when a dictate comes out to either seeking to restrict or have you compromise or to deny something that God has called you to do within your institution, within your sphere, then when the government says you can't do that or we want to restrict that, then you say, I have to obey God rather than men. But it's important. You don't take it outside of your sphere. You have to take it within it, which is why we're going to look at the three spheres. We're going to look at the three institutions to see who's the head, who directs it, um, and where the limitations are on all of them, which is why you guys have outlines here today. And so we see that initially there in Daniel chapter 1 that they wanted, you know, the, that whole area of compromise. Well, there in Daniel chapter 3, all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar builds this image. And he says, okay, I want everyone to bow down and worship the image when we set off all the music. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what do they do? Well, their dictates that God gives to them as individuals, as a family, as a person that's walking with God, says what? I will not listen to the dictates. Even though you tell us to bow down, I will not do that. And so they refuse to bow down. And then all of a sudden they said, all right, well, fine. We'll take the punishment. If, if, if you, your dictate is to punish me, I will take the punishment. And God did what? He met them in the fire. And then eventually Nebuchadnezzar says, well, come on out. I want to talk to you guys. What in the world is going on? And then in Daniel chapter 6, Daniel was there and the sad traps were all jealous of, of him and his authority. And they wanted to find something in which to accuse Daniel. So eventually in Daniel chapter 6, what they do is they go to the king and they say, listen, is there a way? I think that you are such an amazing king that we should have a whole month where no one petitions any God except you. It should only come to you. You are our provider. You are our great king. And so he said, oh, that sounds really good. Well, what does Daniel do? Daniel says, oh, I'm sorry. I'm not going to petition you. I'm going to petition God. And he goes as was the custom of his youth up to his room where he prayed. And he opened the windows. He prayed towards Jerusalem. And what happens? Well, he gets thrown into the lion's den. 
But it's interesting that these godly men choose to very specifically say, I'm not going to listen to a dictate when you've gone beyond your sphere or you're trying to encroach into what God calls me to do in the institution of the family, the institution of the church. So when you do that, so, you know, we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They don't listen. The Hebrew midwives, they don't listen. Um, Moses' parents, they don't listen. Peter and John, they don't listen. Daniel doesn't listen. He, only because the dictate encroached and tried to restrict something that God very clearly called them, this is what I've called you to do to worship me within this sphere, within this institution that I've ordained. So when it comes to that, the authority within the jurisdiction of each institution does allow for some overlap. In other words, there are certain instances where a government can overlap into the family. There are certain instances where um, a, uh, a church can you know, interject itself into a family. There are certain instances where um, a, a person or a church can interject itself into the government. In other words, there is nothing wrong with a Christian running for a political office. A Christian can do that. And we see that there are certain times in scripture where these things were done. God actually gave the prophet Jonah a command to go to the city of Nineveh to preach God's judgment against it because of its wickedness. And so as Jonah does, amazingly what happens is that this whole government changed its dictates within itself and came to a place of repentance. God, of course, spared it. And so we do see that that happens there in the book of Acts, chapter 5, we understand that there was a man who was living in sin. And as this man was living in sin, what happens is this. There's a, a point where the, the, the church is coming and saying, what in the world is going on here within it? Um, strike that, not Acts chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a man that's living in sin, and the, the, the church itself is now called to say, listen, you, you can't just simply think it's okay. This isn't good. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Such sexual immorality is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For indeed, I am absent but the body, but present in spirit, and I've already judged as though I were present, him who has done this thing. So in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, deliver such a one to Satan. Do you see how he injects himself only within the sphere that was limited to them within the church to say, I'm going to inject myself into this family matter to say, you do that, you can no longer be part of the church. You can do that outside yourself, but you can't do that and be part of this sphere. You're outside of that. And so the church can inject itself into the family. There are certain times within the family that if there are issues where you go to your brother and you try to reconcile, they do not listen. Well, you go and you gather two more. If they don't listen, then what can you do? You can bring it to the church. 
at that point, then the church is able to interject itself into the family because they're choosing the family. I choose to allow, you know, this, the church to come and interject. And so the church can then meet out the, the, the directives, you know, seeking to restore such a one and to bring them to a place of repentance and bring harmony within the church. So there are certain times in which that you can have this moment where there are times that a government can interject itself into a family. If there's abuse in the family, then what do you do? You call the authorities, the civil authorities, and authorities come in and deal out civil punishment. And so there are certain instances where someone says, this is my family and the government can't come in. Oh, yes, it can if you are what? If you are breaking the civil rules. And of course, they're there to what? Protect the people within the borders, either from an outside source or within the source. They're able to protect it and they're able to mete out punishment. So it's within their sphere. And so we do see how um, there are certain times where one institution can interject itself in a limited capacity into another institution. So there are times, there are moments, but as a whole, what Scripture does is this, is it prohibits complete authority over one institution coming in and commanding another. So there are some times where a government wants to insert itself into the church to either, you know, bring about different doctrine, bring about different practices, bring about different works that we as a church need to say, I reject you because God is the head of this church. I need to follow God, not man. There are also times where a church would try to inject itself into a family. Now, years ago, and sometimes you see hints of this coming back, there was a part of the church called a shepherding movement. And what was happening is the church would control everything. They would tell you who you could date, whether you could marry, whether you you could buy a house, whether you couldn't. And they would dictate how much you had to tithe and what you could spend on things. It was crazy that the church had injected itself into the family where the church has no no business being there because the family is a separate institutional sphere than the church. God has given the family its own headship. He's given the family its own responsibilities. And so with the institution of the family, and that's what we're going to look at next, we're going to look at the institution of the family, what's its headship, what's its direction, and then we're going to look at the institution of the church and then the institution of the government, their headship and their direction, and where God brings about certain disciplines. So with the institution of the family, it begins right there in the book of Genesis, And there in the book of Genesis, right at the beginning, what we see is this. In Genesis, in chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, what God does is this. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man shall be alone. I shall make him a helper comparable to him. So out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the air and every beast of the field. But to Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. So what does God do? Now understand what God does. He formed Adam out of the dust of the ground. He formed every beast out of the dust of the ground. But the helper for Adam was not formed out of the dust of the ground. There in verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And as he slept, he took 
one of the ribs, so he took a part of Adam, removed that part from Adam, made it into a woman, and brought her to the man. So the helper was actually made what? From Adam, not made from the dust of the ground. Wasn't independent, but was a help me to him, a completion to him, because as God removed the rib, of course, now he brings that completion. And so we do understand that God is the one who institutes the family because God saw Adam, he brings Eve, and then he tells him, I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, there's another portion of scripture in Matthew chapter 19. I want to read it to you. Very similar. There's not a lot of difference to it. But it begins this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, where they ask him a question about a divorce, but Jesus does this. In Matthew 19, verse 4, and I'm going to read um, all the way down to verse 6. It says, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two flesh, Two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So God has to dictate that when I join a family, no one is supposed to divide that family. God has put this institution together. He has established it. And so we do understand here that this is the institution within the family. There's another passage that you should be aware of. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, what is declared is this. I want to read verses 4 through 9, where God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he says in verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, and verse 7, and you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Bring the word of God. Teach them to your children. God has instituted here the family and how the family is to be directed. In Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, but those things which are revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever that we may do them. And some things God says I haven't revealed, other things I have revealed. So you take these things and you walk those things. So we do understand that here there is where God has come and he has instituted the family. He created man, made woman, be fruitful and multiply. God is the one who designed it. God is the one who institutes it. Now, what is the head of the family? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want to read just a verse to you so that you become aware of this. In verse 3, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, But I want you to know, here's, here's Paul, I want you to know, that the head of every man is Christ. As man is the head of the, the, the family, man himself also has a head. So keep in mind that as you are thinking, I'm the head of the family. <laughs> what God is saying is this, you're the chief steward of this institution that I've given to you. You're accountable for its spiritual well-being. You are the head. And so we do understand here that the head of every man is Christ. 
And so as God begins to bring the dictate here to the family, the authority, the head of the family is none other but Jesus Christ himself. We also see there's another passage I want to share it to you. In Psalm 22, verse um, 27, it says this, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord's, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. All the families, all the nations, its directive is worship God, serve God. And so God himself says, I'm the the key to what the family does. All that is entailed within the family is to glorify me, to worship me. So understand, husband, your role within the ministry of the family is to glorify God. Women, your role within the, the ministry of the family is to glorify God. And so what God does is this. He gives within the family a structure, Jesus Christ being the head, and then he brings out this structure within the family. And within that family, within that that institution of the family, within that sphere, there are dictates that direct what the family should be doing. To the husbands, there are two portions of scriptures that you should be aware of within the husbands. The first is found in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. And that's where simply, you know, husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's the key to it. And so we do understand that there's this whole portion where God does tell the, the husband, this is your ministry, love your wife. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, husbands likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Now, it's interesting that, that husbands always want to say, I know what God wants of the family, and that's this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. That's the only thing they know about the family. What what Peter says, husbands, dwell with them, with your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife. In other words, setting her upon uh, a pedestal, if you will. I'm serious. That's the inference. Setting her upon a place where, you know, if you have something beautiful or meaningful, you set it upon, you have a special place of honor for it, like on a, on a place of a fireplace or where you're always looking at it. This is what he says you should do to your wife, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel as they are heirs together in the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. It's, it's loving your wife and honoring your wife and giving her a, a place of honor within the home and within your own life. And so there is a portion that God gives to the, the area of the husband And so he says, the husband, your main ministry is to love your wife and to honor her, to set her in a place of of, um, prestige. Then he also says to the wife, what is your ministry? Well, initially we already read in Genesis chapter 2, 18, that the wife was supposed to be what? You're the helper. I will make a helper comparable to him. He didn't make a slave. He didn't make a robot. He didn't make a housekeeper. He made a helper that the two together would have dominion over the world. Now, there would be one who directs the spiritual authority within the house, is called to be the man. And so, but he's not the boss. He's the chief steward. Jesus Christ is still the boss. What the chief steward needs to do is say, I want this family unit, this institution that God has placed us in, I want it to glorify God. Here's my role. But to the wife, she is supposed to be the helper. She pours herself into the completion of another. 
And so within that, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 6, it talks about the wife being that helper, how she can come alongside her husband and, and really saying that the, the, the wife, the main focus is not to focus on you and what you can do and how beautiful you can be and what you can do, but focus yourself on saying, you know, how can I bring my husband into the fullness of the ministry that God has called him to be? How can I be that helper? And then we see that the next thing is that God gives to the parents, both the husband and the wife, that ministry to the parents. And so within that ministry to the parents, of course, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, we already said what? You teach them diligently to your children. Understand these words. You speak of them when you, when you walk along the way. You speak of them when you're in the house. You speak of them when you rise up. You speak of them when you lie down. You bring the word of God to your children. That's the first and foremost ministry that we do to our children. Not to teach them how to be wealthy. Not to teach them how to you know, beat the world and its system but how to honor God. This is the dictates that God gives to the parents. The other thing that he does this, yeah, he says, be careful. He says, don't, don't, you use the rod to drive out rebellion. But keep in mind that it doesn't mean that you just, everything is rebellion. What does God do to us? He teaches us first. And if you refuse to have that teaching, then God says, now I need to do correction. And so understand that the rod of correction it, it, is, it deals with, I know what to do now, but it isn't abuse. It is by no means abuse, but it is um, a necessary tool just to bring about you know, a reaction, say, here's the word of God. This is what we do as a family. We follow it. There's another point of the ministry to the parents of the children found in Ephesians chapter 6, verse um, 4, where it says, you know, husbands or, or the parents... The, the, the fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. Don't make fun of them. Don't tease them. Train them. It doesn't mean that, that you have to be their best friends, but it doesn't mean that you have to be a cruel boss or a taskmaster. It says don't provoke them to anger. You want to raise them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You want them to glorify God. Teach them through your own life what it is to glorify God, and then walk that and, and, and help guide them through that as far as the teaching. So we understand that the, the parents have a ministry to the children. The children also have a ministry to the parents. They're in Exodus 20:12. Honor thy father and thy mother. This is what we do. And so we understand is, is God teaches the children to honor their parents. What we do understand is there's a section that God gives in the book of Ephesians, and I want to read to you just a portion in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. It makes this statement, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. So there is a ministry within this sphere of the family that God gives to the husband. He gives to the wife. He gives to the wife and the husband to minister to their children. He gives to their children to minister to their parents. All of this is to do what? To honor the head. To honor the head, which is God. And so we do see that, that all of a sudden, now it makes sense what it is. And so when you have that area of the home, 
there are certain limitations that comes with this institution of the family. That one, the institution of the family is you cannot as a family make any rule that you want to make. Remember that portion of scripture that we already read there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where there was sexual immorality? Well, you can't have that in, in your home and then seek to do what? To seek to say, I'm going to go and just be a part of the church too. There, there, there's limitations. You can't do what you want to do within the home. Why? Because Jesus Christ is still the head of that home and you are stewards of that ministry. So it's important to recognize that. Now, within the ministry of family versus family, keep in mind that, that one family cannot simply say, you know what? What I want to do is this. I want to bring civil judgment upon another family. I don't know if you've ever heard of that feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. And, and it's like, I'm going to you know, meet out this judgment. I'm going to meet out that judgment. And so we see here that it is certain areas within the family that the civil authorities do need to meet out those kind of justices and judgments. So if you have a problem with another family and it's civil, you need to go to them. If you have another problem with the family is spiritual, you need to go to them first, go to someone else and go to the church. But it's important to recognize that it's the civil leaders that deal with issues between the family. There's a portion of scripture you should be aware of found in Numbers chapter 35. Beginning in verse 9 all the way to verse 34, the, they talk about these things called the cities of refuge. Now what a cities of refuge was is there were three on the eastern side of the Jordan, three on the western side of the Jordan, and they were all within one day's journey from wherever you were. And what these cities of refuge would be is this, that if you as a person accidentally injured someone or killed someone, let's just say that there you were, you were, you know, in your field and you were throwing rocks into your rock pile, but you had this neighbor that was spying on you and you didn't see him spying on you, but you threw a rock into a rock pile and bonked him on the head and he dies. Well, you didn't mean to kill him. You didn't even see that he was there. So you, you are a manslayer, but it wasn't intentional. So what do you do because you didn't have an intent to kill him? Well, you can go into the city of refuge. Now, what happens is the family of the man that you bonked on the head, they're going to send this avenger of the blood. And they're going to say, we need to make you know, adjustments because the civil authority says, I can avenge the blood. But what happens is this, the people within that city of refuge, the assembly, the leaders within it, call the congregation. What they will do is this, they will determine whether it was done on accident or whether it was done on purpose. And so as they make that determination, if it was done on accident, they keep that man in the city of refuge and they protect them. If it was done as um, uh, an, an area where it was on purpose, then we see here that that city will give that man over to um, the authority or to the avenger of blood, and then he's able to mete out justice. And so within that, if someone could find Tim and tell him to put on the AC, that would be a real blessing. And so um, with this, what we see is this. As we go through, we now see this is the institution here of the, the, the family and how there are certain areas in which other institutions can come in just in a portion of it. Now we look at the institution of the church. Within the institution of the church, beginning in Ephesians chapter 2, what we see is this. 
there's this beautiful picture where God himself institutes the church. Ephesians chapter 2, I want to start reading in verse 17. And in verse 17 through 22, it makes a statement. And he came and he preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So Jesus Christ came, preached the gospel, said, I'm the head of this church. You who are close, the Jews, you who are far away, the Gentiles, you come in and be a part of my body. And then it says this. Now, therefore, verse 19, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in the dwelling place of God in the spirit. And so we see this is the aspect that God has given to us that we as the church, Jesus Christ is the head of this church. We also see that in 1 Peter chapter 2, prior to going into this area of the government, we see in verses 4 and 5, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So we see here that God is the one who institutes the church. He says, I've built it up. Jesus says, I've given you this wonderful gospel that I'm the head of this new institution, this new building. My body becomes a temple. I'm the chief cornerstone of this church. I'm the one that instituted it. Well, as he instituted, of course, we understand what? He's also the head of it. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it does make this statement, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He himself is the one who's established the head. All the others that we're going to see within the ministry of the churches do one thing, to glorify him as that head. There in Ephesians chapter 1, I want to read to you verses 17 through 20. Uh, I want to read to you verse 22. In Ephesians 1 verse 22, it simply declares this. And he put all things under his feet. God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. So he is the head of all things, even the church. And, and so we do see here is this is the, the directive of God to the church that we, as God institutes the church, he puts himself over the church. There in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23, I want to read that to you. It says, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. It doesn't get any clearer than that, that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, as the head of the church, understand, and I want you to see one aspect, and it's key. And this is key when it comes to dictates of the government coming into the church. The reason being is this. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, <clears throat> and then I'm going to read to you 
a, a couple of other portions. It makes this statement, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're a spiritual house. What does it mean that we're a spiritual house? The reason that we're a spiritual house is understand this. Yes, we are physical beings, but we are not just physical beings. The real us is what? We're spiritual beings. There's a portion there in the book of Genesis. And if you're familiar with verse chapter 1, verse 26, God says this, let us make man in our image, physical, spiritual. There's another portion that you should be aware of found in um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, where it says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we, we see here that we're not just physical beings. So what happens is this, when the government comes and is worried about our physical beings, we need to say, I'm sorry, and you may be worried about my physical being, but the purpose of the church is not to concern itself with the physical being. Why? Because this is a tent, and we're all going to put it off. The church is concerned with the spiritual being, building up the spiritual being, encouraging the spiritual being, directed the spiritual being. So understand that what we see is that we're not just physical beings. What we are is we're spiritual ones, and we need to awaken the spirit of those who are dead, and then we need to feed the spirit of those who are alive. And that's what we do as a church. So when the government comes and says, listen, we have to limit you in, in, in ministering to the spirit, we have to say, well, you've encroached beyond your ministries to the physical the church's ministry is to the spiritual. You take care of your institution that God has established for you, and then let me take care of the institution that God has established for me and the church, and you can't encroach into this. So we want to make sure that our job is to what? Not to forsake the assembling of the brethren. We want to make sure that we with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord. These are what we want to do. And, and within this, keep in mind that we have certain institutions in what we do, that we want to make sure that we awaken those who are dead in their sins, come and hear the gospel being proclaimed. I want to tell you that you're dead in your sins. I want to tell you that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that he forgave you your sins, and that in him you don't have to fear death. If you believe in him, he says, you will never die. Do you believe that? So we're not worried about the physical. We're worried about the spiritual and then building up the spiritual, seeking to come in and grow the church and minister to the church and have the brethren fellowshipping together, having iron sharpening iron. And what we are called to do as a church is this, that we are called to shepherd the church of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen these sheep that have TVs put on their head. And it's amazing because these sheep have these little hoodies things and they have a, a little TV and the shepherd is there on Zoom. And the shepherd says, go here and go here. And no, it doesn't happen like that. The shepherd does what? He's there with the sheep. 
When you shepherd the sheep, you guide them, you lead them, you move them from a place that's dead grass into a place of living grass. You bring them to a place of still waters. You protect them from the, the, what's coming in. You have to shepherd the flock of God. And so you have to be present to shepherd. And so there's certain things where when the government comes and says, I'm going to interject in this, that we can say humbly, and keep in mind, we need to say it humbly, should I listen to God or you? And I know what God has called us as a church to do. And what he calls us to do as a church is this. Our ministry to the church is to the spiritual us. To build it up, to equip it, to preserve it, to bring people from death into life. And so within the church, he gives all kinds of areas of the ministry. He gives, of course, ministries to the bishops. And of course, there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, he gives very distinctly, these are what the bishop should do. He gives the ministry to the elders. In 1 um, Timothy chapter 5, verse 7, he gives more ministry to the elders. I want to read to you this portion here in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, another aspect of the elders of the church. It declares this, the elders who are among you, I exhort whom I am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not being lords over those who are entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This is what God calls us to do for the elders. Now, he also will give the ministry to the deacons, those who are simply the servants that are there established in the book of Acts. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, you see that ministry to the deacons. But he also then gives the ministry of the body of believers. I want to share with you a passage found in the book of Hebrews and in Hebrews chapter um, 13 verse 7. This is the ministry he gives to the body to those who are over you, to the deacons, to the elders, to the bishops. Remember Hebrews 13 verse 7, those who are over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. In other words, walk the walk. But you who are in the church give the certain reverence, not, not a reverence you give to God, but a certain respect to those who give to you very clearly the word of God. In other words, don't oppose everything that they say. Don't write me letters every week. Lowell, I hated the text that you gave me. And, and, and it's okay. If you need to do that, do that because I got a delete button on my computer and, and, and it works really, really well. And so um, don't keep mind. If there's issues, I'll look at them, but a lot of times they're just not issues. So um, when it comes down to it, we do see that there's a ministry that God gives to the bishops, to the elders, to the deacons, and then to the body itself. There's a ministry to the body. Now, the church does meet out discipline, and the church is called to meet out discipline. But the key, the key to all church discipline is found in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. You who are spiritual, seek to restore such a one in the spirit of meekness gentleness. The church is not about accusation and condemnation. The church is about restoration. 
And when we do restore, it is about doing it in meekness and gentleness. It is about wanting to restore. That's the key to the church. Now, there's another point where you should be aware because there comes a time within the church that they're in um, Matthew chapter 18, verse 17. Let me just read to you that, that point. It says, and he who refuses to hear them, that is the two comes, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you as a heathen or a tax line. In other words, you got to remove him from the church. The church does have to protect the purity within itself. Not that you deal with all sin, but you deal with practice sin that's an abomination to God. You have to deal with those areas. And so we do see here that there's a way in which the church does meet out discipline. Now, we've covered a few times that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where, you know, um, we do see there was that man in sexual immorality that eventually what happened is he had to be dealt with. He had to be removed from the, um, from the church because there were just issues within it. Well, eventually what happens is this. As you look to the church bringing that discipline, in the very next epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 2, beginning in verse 5, he makes this statement. But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent. Not to be too severe. This punishment, we're just talking about that man, which was inflicted upon the majority is sufficient. In other words, the man wants to repent. The man is forsaken that sin. He wants to come back. He says that, that penalty was enough. And so he says this in verse 6 of, of 2 Corinthians 2. This punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for this man. So that on the contrary, you ought to rather forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps this one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So there comes a point where what? Yeah, you got to remove him, but it's all about restoration. That's that ministry of the, what the church does to the body of believers. But there are certain limitations and the limitations is this, that the church does not have jurisdiction over parental authority. So the church does not have the jurisdiction to say, listen, here you are as a, as a, as a family member, its own institution, and what I'm going to require as a church, what we're going to require is this, is that you tithe X amount. Now, there are churches that do that. I love what God said. He said, hey, whatever you put upon your own heart, that, that's what you can do. And so if God puts it upon your heart to worship in that way, then worship in that way. If he doesn't, then, then don't. But there are churches who go in and says, we're going to establish this, we're going to establish this, and we're going to establish that you have to do devotions with your kid, and you have to teach him, walk him through this devotional book. The church has no authority, and keep in mind, uh, over a parental authority. You as individual homes... You need to seek the Lord and recognize what he's called you to do. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, support your husbands. Be helpers to them. Husbands and wives, train up your children the way she should go. Give them the word of God when they're, when they're in your house and walking about. And when you rise up and when you lie down, give them the word. Give them the word. Give them the word. This is what we're called to do. But what happens is the church doesn't have that authority. So... I want to take you to a point of scripture where it talks about the church doesn't have jurisdiction over this parental authority. 
and that what we should be doing is this. We should be judging those on the inside, not on the outside. It, it, it makes a statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and beginning in verse 9 to 13, I want to read it to you. It says, I wrote into my epistle not to keep company with sexual immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of the world, or with the covetous, or the extortioners, or the idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. See, our, our ministry isn't to go into the world and tell them what they're sinning. Our ministry is to do what? To go to the church and tell them what they're sinning. So when you see Christians picketing abortion clinics, when you see Christians out there picketing, you know, the, the pride fest, keep in mind that our ministry as a church should not be trying to tell the outside people that they're sinning. Trust me, they probably know they're sinning. What our ministry should be is to warn the church inside. Now, we do need to tell them there's hope. We do need to tell them that Jesus loves them. I don't have an issue with that. But what happens is that the church doesn't want to tell people of the love of God. They want to tell people of the hatred and the judgment of God. And to keep in mind that it's the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. And so we see here, he says, back in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, I certainly did not mean with the sexual immoral people of the world or with these covetous extortioners, idolaters, since in the world, you need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you, verse 11, not to keep coming in and named a brother who's sexually immoral, covetous, idolater, reviler, drunkard, or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who are on the outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges, therefore put away from yourself the evil person. So we do see that the church is able to judge those who are inside. Now, when you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I want to share with you a couple of verses because what happens is the church is able to mete out certain issues dealing with civil matters if the people are willing to go to the church to receive that judgment. doesn't mean that it's their, their role, but they can interject in that only as long as the people are wanting to do that. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world and the world will be judged by you? You are unworthy to judge the smallest matters. Do you not know that we will judge the angels how much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning the things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. It is so that there is not, is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but a brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelief believers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why then do you rather not rather accept the wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? In other words, to let, you know, God's glory be. So it's important to see that, that the church has jurisdiction over certain parental authority and over certain areas of civil authority. But keep in mind that there are going to be aspects where the church does not have authority that you can say, I don't want the church, I want to go beyond. Proof text is this. In the book of Acts, chapter 25, verses 8 through 10, what happens is this. The religious leaders are there with Festus. They're wanting Festus to bring Paul in a place where they can kill him. 
And Paul's wanting to do the religious people a favor. And he makes this statement in, in, in Acts chapter 25, beginning in verse 8. And while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended in anything at all. And so Paul makes this statement. I, I've not offended the Jews. I've not offended the temple. I've not offended anything. I've not offended Caesar. But Festus, verse 9, wanting to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and there be judged before me according to these things? So Paul said this in verse 10, I stand at Caesar's judgment where I ought to be judged. To the Jews I've done nothing wrong, as you very well know. So Paul said, I want to go to a higher court. So you can go to a higher court. You don't have to be simply with the church. You, you can do that. You have a right within family matters to say, I do want to take it civilly. Paul says you, you shouldn't, but Paul also said there comes a time where there's an exception. And so keep in mind the balances of God's word. And so we do see here that the, the discipline of the church within the church on spiritual matters, and it's only... And the government deals with the, the, the civil matter. So if there's an issue within the church, then there are certain things where the, the government says, I need to step in with the government because this was something civil that happened within the church. And you need to let the government come in and deal with it. Um, if you're familiar that there was a, a, a point in time where there was a lot of Catholic priests that were abusing children, and that had to be given over to the civil authority. The church does not have the right to, to mete out the judgment in that. That's simply, it, it crossed the line into the civil. The civil now has the right to deal with it. So we look to that. Now, lastly, the institution of the government. The institution of the government was initially there in Genesis chapter 9. I want to read it to you. It's a point where after um, Noah himself had, had come on the scene and, and had been saved, what we see is this. God gives a dictate to Noah. And it begins this in Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 5. God makes a statement. Understand, the statement is now the institution of civil government to deal with matters. He says this, Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, For surely for your blood, lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. If someone kills a man, I'm going to demand a reckoning. So from the hand of every beast, I will require it. From the hand of every man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whomever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man, and as for you... Be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth. So we see here that God initially institutes government. The next place of instituting government is found in the book of 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, beginning in um, chapter 8, what we see is this. There comes a point where the people want to have a king. And what God says is this. I'm going to allow you to have a king, but you're going to have to understand what this king is going to do. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, beginning in verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day which which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore... 
take heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the behavior of the king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord. And he said, verse 11, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots, to be his horsemen, to some to run before his chariots. He'll appoint captains over thousands, captains over his fifties. He'll set some to plow the ground and reap the harvest, some to take, make his weapons of war and, and, uh, um, and equipment for his chariots. He'll take some of your daughters, perfumers, cooks, and bakers, and he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and he will give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain, verse 16. He'll take your male servants and your female servants, verse 17. He'll take a tenth of your sheep. People said, all right, let's do that. But he said, this is what happens when I'm going to institute government. The government is going to instill upon you taxes, they're going to take from you so they can provide for you protection, provide for them to enable them to, to help you with this protection. So this is what the, the, the government does. And, and God has instituted the government. And God has made it, it clear that this is what I'm, I'm calling the government to, to do and to be. Now, in Psalm 22, verse 28, it says this, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the kingdoms are God. He's the one that sets them up. He's the one that rules over the nations. Another aspect of the institution of the, the, the government is this. John chapter 19, I want to read to you verses 10 and 11. It makes this statement. Then Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? Do you know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Now, I got power. What does Jesus say <laughs> in John 19 verse 11? He said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who's delivered to me, you, me to you has the greater sin. So understand that God gives and institutes power within the government. And of course, the last one that you're all very aware of, we've read it before. I'll read it very quickly here in Romans 13, verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. God is the one who instituted these areas of authority. Now, who's the head of the government? Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. It says this, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. What does that mean? <laughs> He's the head of everything. It means that there's anything that exists, Jesus is the head of it, including all the governments. And so keep in mind that as maybe you've come to understand and maybe you haven't, but the government isn't perfect. Now, now, maybe you've seen a perfect government. That's okay. I'm glad that you have. But understand, although the government may not be perfect, there's a point that I want you to be aware of. There in the book of Judges, chapter 17, verse 6, says, there's no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's chaos. So what the government does is this. It tries to instill peace and harmony within the, the, the civil living that we do. That's its role. So although the government isn't perfect, it was established by God. He instituted this government. He's the head of the government. Now, the government does not dictate church doctrine. It does not dictate church guidelines. It does not dictate church practices. Let me say that again. A government does not dictate church doctrine, 
church guidelines or church practice. In other words, the government can't tell you, you can't do communion. You can't gather together to do communion. The government can't say you can do that. It has no authority over the practices, the guidelines, the doctrine of the church. It can't say you have to redefine marriage because this is what we're trying to do now. It has no authority. So keep in mind that the government where you see like, like North Korea and Iran, Iraq, Somalia, um, China, they forbid the church to meet. So what does the church do? Does the church say, I'm not going to meet? No, the church can say, is it rather to obey God versus men? You, you be the judge. And so they're going against very humbly the dictates that the government has stated because the government went beyond their, the institution, the sphere that God has said, this is your authority and no more. So within that, it has no authority over the church. The other thing that government doesn't have is this, unless you give it to them is the government was not designed to train up the children in the way that they should go. It was the parents. God told the parents in Deuteronomy, you teach them the word, you do this. And so I do want you to understand that there are certain times in where an institution will fail to do its role, will fail to do what God had called it to do. And when it fails to do that role, other institutions feel we need to step in and help out. So when, when, when a parent or, or a family doesn't provide for its children, now the government says, well, we better step in and help out, or the church, we better step in and help out. Rather than you need to listen to what God calls you to do, and we need to assist you so that you can perform what God has called you to do. But when it comes to that, I think it's important to see that the government itself shouldn't dictate the church doctrine practices. Um, the government is not to train your children. And a government can also do this. A government can limit its own authority. What do I mean by that? If you're familiar with this passage in Daniel chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar makes this idol, and he says this, I've made a dictate that everyone who um, hears the music bow down and worship. And of course, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they don't. Well, eventually what Nebuchadnezzar does is this. At the end of Daniel 3, verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar now speaks up after they're saved through the fire. He calls them out. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angels and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and had yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. He could change the law whenever he wanted. I make a new decree that any People, nation, language, which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, their houses made in ash heap, and there is no other God that can deliver like this. And the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is crazy. He can make a law, change a law willy-nilly. Now, eventually what happens is this. Further on in the book of Daniel, what takes place is this. That there in Daniel chapter 6, verse 8, a unique statement is being made. When they get Darius to sign a decree that they, they can only worship him, it says this, and all the governors, so the governors and the satraps, thronged before the king and said to him, King Darius, live forever. In verse 7, all the governors of the kingdom and administrators and satraps, the counselors, advisors have consulted together and established a royal decree to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or any man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the lion's den. And then he says this in verse 8, 
Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. Now, Darius doesn't have the ability to just change a law. When he wrote this into law, he was there saying, Daniel, Daniel, I'm so sorry. Are you alive? He comes in the morning. He could not change his law where Nebuchadnezzar could change it at any time. So a government can limit its authority. A government can set a law to impose upon itself certain restrictions. The United States of America has done that within the Constitution of the United States of America. It says, we are a government that is of the people, by the people, for the people. That we as a government do not have authority to stop you from peaceably assembling We do not have the authority to prevent you from arming yourselves. The government has said we're limiting our authority over the nation by imposing this this document called the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution of the United States of America. So a government can limit its own authority, and then it's the legal representation of you need to do this. You've limited your own authority. And so we as Christians can can walk in the fullness of those, those laws that have been placed. Now, where's the line? This is where it's key. And so as you're looking at your watch, understand there's a very end of it. We're, we're almost there. So where is the key? Where is the line? What happens when when it's too far? When a government, now if you take a look at your outline, it's the very last thing that's there. It's in italics, it's underlined, and it's in boldness, so you'll actually see it. And mine is actually highlighted. Where is the line? When a government steps outside their sphere or seeks to restrict the dictates of God that he is placed upon the church or the family, wanting to stop or to restrict the one spreading of the word and two, the work of God. These are the keys. When a government steps, oversteps their bounds and seeks to restrict the dictates that God has given to the family, seek to restrict the dictates that God has given to the church, wanting, and it, it begins to stop the spread of the word or it begins to stop the work of the word the work of the church or the work of the family, what God has called you, his word or his work at that point, we now say, you've gone beyond. I don't have to, I don't have to abide by you from this point. So what happens when a government steps outside of its sphere? I want to give to you just one scripture in Jeremiah chapter 18. I want to start reading in verse 6. I'm going to read to verse 12, but it says this. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. The instant, verse 7, in Jeremiah 18, I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck it up and to pull it down and to destroy it. If that nation of whom I've spoken turns from its evil, I'll relent of the disaster which I've thought to bring upon it. And if the instant I speak of a nation concerning a kingdom to build it and plant it, if it does evil in my sight and does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good which I said that I would, um, I would benefit it. So God says, I will either build up a nation or I will destroy a nation if it listens to my word. And that's the context. And so we see that that God does allow nations to discipline nations. In other words, think about this. You have the northern tribes. And God did what? He called Assyria to come down to say, I need you to discipline the northern tribes. They're, They're not listening to me. Take them away captive. I want them out of my land. And so they did. 
but they were too harsh in their punishment. So what did God do? God told Assyria, listen, you're a little bit rough, you're a little bit too harsh. So what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to allow Babylon, who I'm also going to use to punish the southern tribes, I'm going to allow Babylon to deal with you, Assyria. And then with Babylon, you went too far. Guess what? I'm going to bring the Medo-Persians in to deal with you. And so God uses a nation to judge a nation, and God can do that. God will do that. He'll use a nation to judge another nation. There's another way that God deals with nations. And I love this probably more than than any other, that in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22, when you see the nation Rome, as powerful as it was, what, what, what happens is this. Paul said that here the gospel is in Caesar's house. The very word of God is permeating Caesar's house. It's permeating all of Rome. And, and in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I may be in chains, but the gospel is not chained. Every guard that was chained to him, Paul said, yes, yes, I have a captive audience. In other words, think about this. If I go an hour and 15 minutes, some of you will say, it's way too long, I'm leaving. Can you imagine if you were all chained to your chair and I went for four hours? And they were literally chained to Paul for six to eight hours at a time. He's like, yes, a captive audience. And he's just preaching and preaching. He says, the gospel's not changed. Now, here's what happened to Rome. The gospel infected Rome one life at a time, one heart at a time. And eventually, God would deal with Rome, and Rome would implode upon itself. How do you deal with a nation? You let God deal with a nation. Our job is this. We give the gospel out. One person at a time, one heart at a time, and watch God change it. This is the beautiful thing that God does that, that we're allowed to do. And so um, you guys have, have references at the end as far as dealing with the, the, the Assyria, dealing with the northern tribes, Babylon, dealing with Assyria. So you can reference those on your, your outline. Um, but at this point, I'm, I went long enough. Let's, let's pray. Amen? amen? Oh, that was a loud amen. Father, we are so grateful for just this clarity. I know there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of detail, a lot of doctrine, a lot of um, truth, Lord. Things that now we don't have to be confused when, when, when we're debating, should we listen to God or listen to man? We know that you've instituted just, you have instituted the family being separate and distinct from the church. You've instituted the church being separate and distinct from the family and the government. You've instituted the government separate from the church and the family. And these things are horizontal. They're equal in authority, and one doesn't have the authority. They're not vertical. They're not where where one has authority over another. And so we trust you, Lord. We trust in what you're doing. And now we have clarity on on, on what your word declares as limitations, what your word declares as boundaries, and what your word declares as authority. And so, Father, when, when we see your word and it says, submit to every ordinance of man, we understand submit to the ordinance of man that is within the authority that you establish for that. But if they're outside, then, then we have to be outside. Then we have to do what you called us to do. We have to obey you versus man. So thank you, Lord, for clarity. Thank you for just your wisdom and your heart. And we do pray that you would continue to draw us to you. As we begin to look to you, our God and our King, as we celebrate you and the authority that you have over us and the authority that you have over the family and the authority that you have over the government, you're doing all things according to your will. And so we trust you in that. But help us humbly walk your will, we ask it in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, amen.